Philippians chapter 2, and I declared this morning that this is the, the best Christmas passage, uh, and uh, I'm excited to turn our attention to it tonight, Philippians chapter 2, um, a few verses, beginning in verse 5, let me read it for us. Paul writes this, Philippians 2.5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As I said, this is an incredible Christmas passage, a passage about the fact that God comes to mankind. It doesn't just, not just that God comes to man, but that God becomes, in this sense, a man. And when we say that God becomes a man, we don't mean, of course, that every part of the Godhead becomes a man. The Father does not become a man. The Holy Spirit does not become a man. But what we mean by that is that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the Logos of God spoken of in John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that that Word becomes a man. He takes on a human nature in every capacity. This is one of the most profound passages in the Bible, and it is also one of the most ethical passages in the Bible. It has the deep end of the theology pool here, but it's also the, the deep end of practical living. You see as you start to uncover the doctrine of the, uh, what theologians call the doctrine of the kenosis, which is the word here, the emptying of Christ, what you see here is not just the theology or the Christology of the thing, but you see here the ethical mandate on how people are supposed to live. And there's a truth in here that the more you understand God's glory, the more effective you are at living the Christian life. There's often a false dichotomy that we entertain in our mind about the difference between theology and practical living. You might hear or even entertain this attitude in your hearts that, oh, I'm not concerned about the theology so much. I don't want to be a theology expert. I'm more concerned about the, the practical elements of the Christian life. I want to be more practiced. I want to focus on, on how I live, not how I, I think. But this passage should shoot that out of the water. This passage is one of the most ethical or practical passages in the book of Philippians, and it is also easily the most theological. And just by connecting them the way Paul does here, he makes the point that the more you understand the theology or the Christology of Jesus Christ, the better your Christian life will be. The more you know theology, the godlier your life becomes. And if that's not true, then you're not learning the right theology. <laughs> in this passage in particular, Mark Jones, a pastor up in Canada, writes this, quote, the incarnation is God's greatest wonder, one that no creature could ever have imagined. God himself could not perform a more difficult and glorious work. It has justly been called the miracle of all miracles. Understand that in the passage we just read here, it is the, the height of God's wonder-working power. It's one thing to create the universe in six days by speaking it. And that, that blows our mind. We start to get our, our, uh, entertain this idea in our hearts and our mind that God brought the universe into existence just with the authority of his words. But this goes even beyond that. This is not just God bringing things that don't exist into existence by the power of his words. This is the person with that kind of power 
becoming clothed in human flesh. Not only is this ethical, but it's also musical. This is a, a hymn. Now, you don't see this in the way the ESV formats it, but some other uh, Bible translations do format it like music, and it is uh, hymnotic here, like passages in, in the Gospel of Luke. There's a few songs there, First Timothy 3, Revelation 5, First Peter 2. This section here is poetry. It is designed to be memorized and sung, and perhaps many of you have memorized it. I, I memorize this passage by a song that is, is commonly sung in churches about it. It's written to be sung, and that shows you again. It's written to be lived, it's written to be sung, it's written to be memorized, and it's written mostly to teach you about the nature of Jesus Christ. It begins with a simple command. Down in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. It's an imperative. Have this mind. Act like this, you could say it that way. Uh, The idea of have this mind, it sounds passive in English, but it's not passive in Greek. Have this mind, it's active. You could render it like this, get this mind. You need to have this mindset about you. There's a mindset that is out there. There's a mindset that Paul has been presenting in the book of Philippians from uh, chapter 1, the middle of verse uh, 18, all the way down to this passage right here. Paul has been describing a mindset. It's the mindset that he has to live as Christ and to die as gain. And now he's connecting it to the mindset of Jesus Christ. And he's commanding you to get this mindset. It's important that you understand that it's an active pursuit. You will not passively acquire this mindset. It won't just happen to you. You won't wake up one day having the mindset that Paul's commanding you to have. You have to go after it. Paul's command here is for you to think like this, for you to live like this, for you to love like Jesus loves, for you to act like Jesus acts, and particularly here for you to think like Jesus thinks, because once you get your mind in line with how Jesus' mind is, you're going to see your heart and your affections follow. Paul's launching you on a treasure hunt here. Go find this attitude, he's saying. Go, there's an attitude, a mindset, a worldview out there that Jesus has. Go get it and make it your own. Go capture it. And I hope that as you read this, you're taking that on as your mission. This attitude, he begins, as I mentioned, describing it back in chapter one, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I mean, that is the mindset right now, that your life is built up in Christ, and so death for you is a gain. If you live for anything else, death is a loss. You don't get to take anything else with you when you die. But if you live for Christ, death is a gain for you. That starts the mindset he's after. Once you start thinking like that, where your life gets so wrapped up around Jesus Christ that you really believe that death is gain for you, now you're on the road to the mindset of Christ. The mindset continues on, chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It's impossible to say that your life is for Christ while you're being arrogant, it's impossible to say your life is sold out for Jesus Christ where you're, where you're boasting about yourself. And so the mindset of Jesus Christ, the mindset that it is better to die for the glory of God than live for self, that mindset carries over into humility, to brotherly love, affection, sympathy in chapter 2, verse 1. That mindset puts to death selfish ambition in verse 3. It puts to death conceit. And it exalts humility. It exalts brotherly love. It exalts the interests of others. That's the goal, that your life is sold out for Jesus Christ with a heart attitude that dies to self and exalts the glory of God. So how do you do that? I mean, the command in verse 5 is that you're supposed to have this mind among yourselves. 
Paul gives you a little breadcrumb clue here. How are you supposed to have this mindset? He tells you at the end of verse 5, it is yours in Christ Jesus. You can have this mindset too, but only when you look in Jesus Christ. So, what was the mindset of Jesus Christ? And then it'll be your outline tonight, what Jesus' mindset was. It's three verbs. By the way, they all have a negative to it. They're all presented here in the negative because I don't know how you can present this in the positive. You can only really describe this in terms of what it's not. It's too rich, it's too deep to describe it in positive terms beyond humility. Even when you define humility, it's always in the negative sense, like preferring others above yourself kind of idea. That's the way this Paul presents Jesus' mindset here in three negatives. First, Jesus did not grasp his rights. He didn't grasp his rights, and he hits that in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And here's where you start to get into the deep end of the theological pool here. Though he was in the form of God, or though he existed, it would be a better way to translate that, in the form of God. That Jesus had his existence prior to the incarnation, prior to Bethlehem, prior to that first Christmas morning, Jesus had his existence in the form of God. The word form there, it's the Greek word morphe. We get our word for metamorphosis from it. The word morphe is morphed into metamorphosis. See what I did there? The word morphe, it's a, it means shadow. That's the best way I think to describe the word morphe. It means a shadow that something casts. Now, for something to cast a shadow, the reality has to be behind it. And the analogy I think of is the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument has a very distinct shadow, a very distinct shadow. If you see that shadow, if you're walking in the, in the, the Capitol Plaza there and you, you come across the, down the, the mall there and you come across that shadow, you know the Washington Monument is behind it. You don't even need to see the monument. That shadow is cast down the mall and you know right where the monument is because you see the shadow of it. There's no way to fake that. There's no fake Washington Monument or second Washington Monument that's out there that casts the same kind of shadow. It can't be done. This is what Paul means when he says Jesus is in the form of God. He casts the shadow of God would be a way to render it. He casts the shadow of God, which is another way of saying that he shares the substance of God, that he shares the essence of God, that he is God. Because nobody can cast the shadow of God except God. <laughs> nobody has his form. Nobody has his presentation. Nobody has his essence. Nobody has his being. Nobody has his substance. Only God. It's unique to him. But that's the shadow that Jesus cast. And so Paul begins looking at this by saying, Jesus cast the shadow of God as a way of letting you know that he has the form of God. Even the word metamorphosis, I think, is helpful. I know the word came later after Greek here, but work with me for a second. Metamorphosis, the caterpillar, goes through metamorphosis into the, the butterfly. But it's the same if the caterpillar has, soul, uh, has a soul, it's the same soul in that butterfly that comes out of the cocoon that was in the caterpillar or in the cocoon. You know what I mean by that? His, his external appearance changed, but it's the same soul. If caterpillars have souls, don't hold me on that. But if caterpillars have souls, it's the same one in the butterfly that comes out of the cocoon as was in the caterpillar that went in. That's this idea that Jesus Christ has the soul of God. The very essence, the very being of God is Jesus Christ. 
That's what he possesses. And the, the language here is that of possession. He has it. But he didn't consider it something to be grasped. Now, obviously, Jesus has the eternal form of God. He's called his exact image in the book of Colossians. That word in Hebrews 1, he's called the image of God is the Greek word photo, and we get our concept photograph from that. And we get this idea that it's a Trinitarian statement, that, that God exists in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons have the full essence or the full being of God. You don't add the three of them together to get God. They all share the same being of God, yet they have three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And yet, they all are the same substance. They all have the same being of God. Three different persons that make up the Godhead. Now, Jesus, as one of those three persons, has the nature of God. And this is what Paul says. He didn't consider that nature something to be grasped. That word grasp is this idea of digging your fingernails into. He didn't consider that nature worth holding on to. Why not? Why didn't Jesus consider that nature worth holding on to? I mean, we don't give up privileges that we have, do we? You get a privilege, you don't want to give up that privilege. You, you want to hold on to any privilege you have. You want to hold on to it. Yet Jesus had all the privileges of God. And I mean, you can make a list in your mind of privileges of, that exist in being God. The angels worship him, for example. <laughs> the universe is created at his command, for another example. He didn't hold on to those privileges. It says he didn't grasp them. In one translation, it says he didn't leverage them. That's a great way to, to use it. He didn't leverage them for his own advantage. The King James says he didn't consider it robbery to be equal to, to God, that he didn't hold on to it as if it, was, as if it was rightfully his, even though it is rightfully his. Jesus in his goodness and his perfect fellowship with the Father did not grasp that relationship. Now, this begins to speak of the fact of the incarnation, that Jesus leaves heaven and comes to earth. He makes his dwelling among us. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because he was sent by the Father. The scripture makes that clear. Probably a dozen times in John's gospel alone, it describes the Son as being sent by the Father. Why would the Father send the Son? This gets to the heart of redemption, that it was God's plan to redeem mankind from their sin. The plan that, that God made, the entire Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, designed this plan that the Father would send, the Son would go, and the Spirit would then save by drawing people to faith in the Son. That's the plan. Now, for this to happen, the Son has to go. And that's what Paul is hitting on here. That Jesus didn't grasp his relationship with the Father, the rights and prerogatives of, of deity. He didn't dig his fingernails into them, but he, it's not as if he went reluctantly to earth. When the Father sent, he went willingly. And this gets to the, the nature of God being a Savior. That God has a desire in himself to save people from their sins. And this gets back to creation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the world. The Father spoke, the, the Son created, the Spirit hovered. All three members of the Trinity involved in creation for the purpose and for the benefit of magnifying the glory of God to the earth. To radiate their joy. I hope that you... Reject the idea in your mind that God created the world because he was lonely. I've heard people say that. 
Generally, there are children that say that, but I've heard people that haven't grown out of that kind of theology. Why did God create the world? Oh, he just needed, he needed fellowship. He needed people to see, it's lonely up there, just God. He needed people, which is another way of saying that God had a Jesse-shaped hole in his heart, and he created the world so that I could, I could just minister to him, really. And that's not true. God was completely content, completely happy, not lonely. Between the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's perfect fellowship in all of eternity past. So why did God create? Because God had the desire to share that glory, to share that fellowship. The love and community that God has within the Trinity, he had the desire to share it with others. It's the philanthropic nature of God, and that really is the best word for it. The philanthropic nature of God, that God has a desire in himself to share himself. That doesn't mean he's lonely. It doesn't mean he's insecure. Again, you, you often hear people, especially in our materialistic American culture, saying that for if the God of the Bible exists and that God is insecure or that God is egotistical, imagine creating a universe where you're sovereign and you can make people do what you want and you say you all have to worship me. I mean, how egotistical is that? It's not egotistical. It's philanthropic. You would never look at a billionaire who gives his money to, to charities to, to meet people's needs and help human suffering and say, oh, he must be so shallow that he thinks the best way to use his resources is to help other people. I mean, how shallow must he be that all he wants to do is, is help and be kind and good to others? I mean, he must not be able to look in the mirror without feeling guilty about something. I mean, you would never say that. You would say that's generous of him. That's philanthropic, benevolent. And this is true with God as well. And this starts to get to the reason that Jesus did not grasp his rights as God. Jesus had an overarching desire in him to work for the Father's glory, to work for God's glory, not his own. He desired to make this Trinitarian plan to save mankind known to the world. He desired to enact it. There's a union in purpose here. It's the Father's desire to send. It's the Son's desire to go. It's the Spirit's desire to save. All three members of the Trinity are working together to save people from their sins. Jesus at no point leverages this and says, why do I have to go? Why do I have to leave heaven? Why can't somebody else do it? Why do I have to go be crucified? He never said those things. And that's Paul's main point here. He didn't grasp onto his own rights. He didn't leverage them for his own advantage. But rather, he used his prerogatives as God to expand the glory of God and our perception of it to bring us joy. That's the first thing he did. He did not grasp his rights. Secondly, he emptied himself. And that's the Greek word kenosis or kineo. And that's where you see here in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not call equality with God to be grasped. But verse 7, emptied himself. And that's the verb right there. That's where we get the, the theological word kenosis from. He emptied himself. Now, empty is a strange way to translate kineo. But it, I mean, I suppose it's the best way. It doesn't really mean empty as much as I think it could mean a form of humility. He was existing in the form of God, but he added to himself a new form. This is what it means. He emptied himself. What does it mean to the emptied himself? The rest of the verse, by taking a form of a servant. So he emptied by adding. That's not the normal way that you would empty something. 
You empty a water pitcher by dumping the water out. But when Jesus empties himself, he doesn't dump his own nature out. He adds to himself. He adds to himself. This is Augustine. This is, I mean, this is not new theology. This is entire church history teaches us. Augustine is a very succinct quote. Augustine says, Christ emptied himself not by losing what he was, but, but, but by taking to himself what he was not. So Jesus empties himself not by pouring himself out, but by an addition, adding a second nature. This is the change here, that before the incarnation, the Son of God was not human. The Son of God did not have a human nature. He's eternally the Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, but he did not have a human nature. And in Bethlehem, at the incarnation, at his inception in Mary, he adds a human nature. There's an addition to him. The very person of the Son of God becomes localized in Mary, then born into the world. He has left heaven at this point, and he's now localized on earth with a new nature. This new nature is human, with all of the limitations of, of being human. And so you can see how this is an emptying. He doesn't set aside his attributes. He doesn't check, you know, it's, he's not a coat check here, that before he comes to earth, he, he checks his glory at the door and comes to earth. <laughs> he doesn't check his attributes and come to earth, and he'll pick them up later. After he dies on the cross, oh, here's the claim check. Here's my attributes of God back. He maintains all of his attributes as God throughout his incarnation. All the glory of God is maintained throughout his incarnation. But the new addition here is his humanity. Let me give you, I think, a very important sentence to understand this. The subject of the incarnation, in other words, the person who became incarnate, it's the person of the Son not the divine nature itself. In other words, the divine nature of God does not become incarnate. But the Son of God who has the divine nature, he does. And why is that very important? Because throughout Jesus' life, he possesses both of those natures. Throughout his life on earth, as Jesus is born, as he's walking to the temple as a 12-year-old, as he is doing his ministry, as he is a carpenter, as he is baptized, as the Spirit descends upon him, as he is walking on water, and as he's nailed to the cross, at every one of those points, he possesses both of those natures, the nature of God and the nature of man. For me, the most helpful illustration that I've heard of this is that of a, a two-level apartment. Now, you can picture a two-level apartment or a townhome where you can go between the two levels freely. It's your apartment. You can walk from one floor to the other as you see fit. You can be in the second floor. You can be in the first floor. They both belong to you in one building. And I think that's the best. For me, that was the most helpful illustration about this, that Jesus, in his own person, his own body, possesses both natures. He can go on either floor. He, can, he possesses the nature of God. He possesses the nature of man. And this is why he does things that only God can do in his life. He can read the Pharisee's mind in Luke 5, verse 22. He knows Nathaniel's character without having met him in John 1. He knows that the Samaritan woman had five husbands in John 4. He knows that Lazarus is dead when he's not even there in John 11. And there's many other things that he does that can only be explained because of his deity. They're not the normal kind of miracles that the prophets did in the Old Testament. Prophets did miracles. But prophets always did miracles with dependent power. They're always depending upon a power outside of themselves for that miracle. That is not how Jesus did miracles. He only did the will of his Father, but he possessed the power to do them himself. This is the nature of the, the two. This is the, 
the concept of the two natures in one person. There are things that Jesus didn't know, of course. In his humanity, he didn't know the time of his second coming. That's evident, but he can freely operate in both of those natures. It's up to him. When you understand that this is what Paul's describing here in Philippians 2, you understand it's not an exchange. He doesn't cash out his godness for his mankindness. He never loses his nature, only adds one. Jonathan Edwards, my favorite theologian, says this. There do meet in the person of Christ such diverse excellencies, which otherwise would have been thought utterly incompatible in the same subject. Such are conjoined in no other person whatever, either divine, human, or angel. And such as neither men nor angels would ever have imagined could have come together in one person had it not first been seen in the person of Christ. In other words, this two natures in one person, it has never before been seen in the universe, in God, and never will be again. Only Jesus has both natures. There's lots of wrong ways to understand verse 7 here. I've heard many people say that it means Jesus set aside his attributes as God when he was a man. And I just don't see that taught in the Bible or even here. I've heard some people say he just forgot that he had those attributes. And that's a a very common teaching, that Jesus was not aware that he had those attributes of God. I would say that's a level of amnesia that would be (laughs) unparalleled, unimaginable, and definitely untaught by Scripture. The right way to see this is to see that Will, mind, consciousness are properties of nature and not of personhood. And thus, in the person of Jesus, he has two wills, two minds, two consciousness, and he can operate freely between them. I think that makes the best sense of the biblical data. And so you might ask, how, there's, can, how then can this be emptying? If it's just addition, it seems like he's growing. Why is it translated as an emptying? Because there's a humility to it. Imagine the owner of a grocery store. Imagine the CEO of Giants. He's in charge of all the giant grocery stores. He can get whatever food he wants to. He can walk in and take it if he wants to. But for the sake of this illustration, he decides to go shopping. (laughs) He's going to go shop in the store. He's not wearing his CEO hat. He's wearing his dad hat. (laughs) And he's pushing his grocery cart down the aisle and he's taking groceries and then he's got to go wait in line and then he's got to go do that annoying loud scanner. Put your item on the belt, slacker. Too many items in the bag. (laughs) Call for help. He's got to go through all of that. Now, does he need to go through all that? No, he could push the grocery cart right to the car. It's his. But he's going to go through all that because he's added a second nature for this illustration. He's added the nature of a customer. You can see how that has a humbling effect, how it has an emptying effect. Did he really empty himself of his CEO powers? No. No. He's just exercising them in a restrained way by adding a new nature to himself. This is why the form of God has to refer to the the essence of Jesus Christ, his person, his soul, maintained the form of God the entire time. But it just added himself a new station or a new position, namely his human nature. And it is right to consider it an emptying. Before his incarnation, Jesus was the lawgiver. In his incarnation, he's the law keeper. He has to actually do the laws that he made. Before his incarnation, he's the authority over all authorities. In his incarnation, he is underneath authority. He has to recognize Pilate's authority. He can tell Pilate you would have no authority unless it was given to you from above. At the same time, he recognizes it. He submits himself to it, even to ungodly authority. 
in his new station, in his new nature. He is localized, he is humble, and most of all, he is human. From creation, from creator to birth. And he doesn't just become a man. I mean, one thing to be born as a king, but he becomes a slave. Ask yourself this. Do people enter the world through birth? Do people experience cold? Do they experience growing up? Do they experience siblings? Do they experience hunger and thirst and tiredness? Are people destined to die? And the answer to all those is yes. And Jesus did all of those things. He was born. He was cold. He grew up. He had siblings that were after him and thought he was out of his mind at one point. He was hungry, thirsty, tired, and destined to die. And he didn't become any kind of man. He became a slave. This is Paul's point here. When slaves were executed, the cross was for them. And that's where Paul goes here in verse 7. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Not just any man, but a slave. And thirdly, he didn't grasp his rights. He emptied himself. And then finally, thirdly, he humbled himself. This is verse 8, being found in human form. And this is, uh, you need to understand that word form now. He didn't lose his form of God. He's added a new form to himself. And this is where our illustrations run out. He maintains the form of God. He would still cast the shadow of God, so to speak. But now there's a second shadow coming off the other side of him. Now you look at him and he's the shadow of man. He has the nature of mankind. He casts both shadows. Now he's found in the form of of a human. And in that form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice the progression. Humanity to obedience to death to the cross. Jesus covered a great distance in this humility here. He goes from heaven to earth and then to the cross. That's the kind of model. When Paul says in Hebrews 12 that he sets out the course we're supposed to run, this is what he means. This is the course that Jesus ran. Heaven to earth, suffering, cross marked out for us. We can zero in on these four stages. These four stages here. Humanity, obedience, death, and cross. Humanity, obedience, death, and cross. He takes on the new human form, he says in verse 8. He becomes obedient, even to authorities, even ungodly authorities, even when arrested. He let the police arrest him, which is so humiliating and also so silly. I mean, angels could have come to his defense, but he allowed himself to be arrested He honored Pilate's position. That obedience leads to his own death as is fitting for humanity. I don't know if it's fitting for Jesus to go to death because he was sinless. He had never sinned, so he didn't deserve death. But it is fitting for people to die because of Adam's sin. And then Jesus takes on our sin, so death becomes fitting for him. All the way to death on the cross. No Roman, of course, could be crucified. It was a capital crime to try to crucify a Roman citizen even. Even if Pilate or Herod would have tried to crucify a Roman citizen, Pilate or Herod could have been executed. But Jesus, as a slave, could be crucified. Obviously, those who are crucified are cursed by God. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says that. Galatians teaches that. Why is this important? Because when you bring all these different strands of theology together, you get the idea that in a real way, it was God who died on the cross. Luther wrote this, quote, if I permit myself to be persuaded that only a human suffered for me, then Christ himself would need his own savior. It has to be the sinless form of God incarnate in human flesh that suffers and dies as a substitute. 
And of course, as Jesus receives our sin, there's a separation in the Trinity. All the joy that marked the Trinity that I talked about earlier tonight, that gets separated as, as sin is imputed onto Jesus Christ. The nails that were driven into Jesus' hands drove a wedge in the fellowship in the Trinity as well. Because at the cross, there is divine forsaking. The Father does turn his face away. That eternal joy, eternal benevolence, and eternal partnership and fellowship in the Trinity is rent in some form at the cross because of our sin. Our sin placed on Christ becomes the fabric that is, tears the very nature of God itself, it seems like. So the question there, that's raised back in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, is that how can you do these things? I mean, this is Paul's illustration. He begins in verse 5 by saying, you do these things. And now in verse 8, he encapsulates what these things are, going from heaven to earth, then obedience, and then dying on the cross for sin. How can you do those things? Well, the point is you can't do those things, but you can have the mindset that does those things. You can have the mindset that leads to those things. So I want to talk about that in closing. How can we have that same mindset? Each one of those points has a practical application to it. First, you can live for God's glory, not yours. You can live for God's glory, not yours. You recognize the world does not revolve around you, but around him. This is what's behind the humility of Jesus Christ. That he didn't grasp the prerogatives of God as something to be held onto and leveraged for his advantage because he understands that the point of the universe is to display the glory of God, even at his own cost. He understands that in a real sense, the glory of the universe revolves around the Father. He's the source even of the life of the Son. So Jesus recognizes this plan to save the world brings glory to the Father, and so he willingly goes. He participates in this plan. He doesn't leverage his godness, his form of God, for his own advantage to get him out of coming to earth or to get out of going to the cross. He recognizes that the universe should rightly revolve around the glory of God. That is something very practical for you to do. To recognize that the center of your universe ought not be you. The point of your life should be to magnify the Father's glory. Jesus had the form of God but denied the prerogatives of that in order to be sent by God to display his glory to the world. You should do the same. Recognize that your life does not exist for your own glory but to display the glory of God. I remember... After the end of church on a rainy day, a mom turns to her daughter and said, would you carry this jacket, which is obviously her daughter's jacket, out to the car? And the daughter, maybe five years old, said, oh, I've been doing so much work today. This is Sunday morning, leaving Sunday school. Oh, I've been doing so much work today. And I could see a look in the mom's eyes, and it was a look I, I know well. I know that look was a list of what, exactly what work have you been doing today? Did you get yourself dressed? Did you make yourself breakfast? Did you drive yourself to church? Did you do your own hair? And what work do you have in mind? Did you, I suppose you carried your bowl of Cheerios, maybe. Is that the work compared to what the mom did? But the mom didn't say any of those things at that moment. The mom said, okay, I'll carry the jacket. Because you understand how a mom, at this point, Sunday at 
12.30 in the hallway right here. It's easier often for the mom to carry the jacket than to have this conversation with the child. And the mom would have had the rights to say, no, you're going to carry the jacket. But she just said, you know what? I'll carry the jacket. Right now I'm going to serve you in this way. This is the attitude that Christ had. He did not leverage his own prerogatives for his own advantage, but he humbly set himself down so that he could live for the glory of the Father, not his own glory. Which leads to second. Love is pursuing what is best for others, even at your own expense. This is the basic concept of love that undergirds all of this, that Jesus was after what was best just for the Father's glory, but also for us. Those two things aren't different. What's best for the Father is what is best for us, and it was both costly for Christ. But that didn't slow him down. He came anyway. This is the most basic concept of love, that you want what is best for the other person, which is going to be what is also best for God. When you start thinking and loving like that, you're seeing people with the eyes of Christ. That involves a humility. It involves an emptying of yourself by taking on other people's concerns to your own life. This is actually what Jesus did. He emptied himself by adding this human nature so that he could live for other people in a very real way to live for other people, to do the righteous deeds that they couldn't do, to bear their sin that they couldn't bear. He did all of that. That's what love is. And you can have that same mindset. You can't come from heaven to earth, but you can have that mindset of wanting to live for what is best for God and what is best for others. And thirdly, to recognize that humility is making sacrifices for the gospel to advance. Humility is seen in making sacrifices for the gospel to advance. In our culture, humility has been a co-opted word. Humility really means in our culture, agreeing with me. <laughs> when I see people in the, in the news or uh, even in presidential debates use the word humility, that's what, that's what they mean by it. You know, if you disagree with me, you know what you need? Humility. If you agree with me, you definitely don't need humility. You need a louder voice. But if you disagree with me, you should be more humble about that. You should be more humble. Humility becomes morphed into a lack of convictions where somebody is humble if they don't have their own convictions. How far apart is that from the humility of Christ? He had convictions. He knew the truth. True humility is not in keeping quiet. True humility is not seen in agreeing with other people. True humility is a sacrificing of your own mindset and your own goals to think more of God's demands than yourself. A life of humility is obviously based on the cross of Christ, which tells us that Jesus could have done none of it, but decided to endure all of it for the glory of God. Before our sins were imputed on Jesus, justice did not demand his death. But in his own humility, he took our sins and then justly went to the cross. That is true humility. To live for God's glory, to love for God's glory, and to sacrifice for God's glory would be another way to say that. To live for God's glory, to love for God's glory, and to sacrifice for God's glory. This is what I meant this morning when I said this passage goes from Bethlehem to Golgotha. It goes from the incarnation, the, the virgin birth, straight to the cross. Because by adding the human nature, which he does in verse 6 and 7, it leads him straight to the cross where he's justly put to death for our sins. And then, of course, to his resurrection in verse 9, that God has highly exalted him. That's the path. This is what's meant by the Christmas song we often sing. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. 
veiled, this line, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He didn't set down his divine nature. He veiled it in flesh. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleases man with men to dwell. Jesus is our Emmanuel. Lord, we're thankful that you have come to us to model true humility as a secondary goal, to be an example for us of how to live our lives. But we know your primary goal was, your primary intention was to be the sacrifice for sin. This was the divine will. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit purposing in their will to send the Son to die on the cross, to send the Spirit to regenerate our souls and bring us into fellowship with you. We're thankful for this divine plan. We know this is the story of Christmas. And God comes to earth, veiled in flesh. We know that flesh, the veils the Godhead, was sinless, never committing a single act of treachery, a single act of treason, a single disobedient moment to your word. Nevertheless, that flesh was crucified and put to death. The God-man died the death of a slave, the death of a, a thief, the death of a murderer, because he died for thieves and he died for murderers and he died for slaves. We're thankful for his death, his body broken for us. We're thankful for his blood spilled out for us without which there is no forgiveness of sins. We're grateful for the reminders you've given for that. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.